Welcome to the next installment of Renewable Radio, a new podcast produced by Renewable Energy Alaska Project. My name is Greg Stiegel, and I will be hosting the next few episodes here. I'm the Operations Director at REAP, and I'm excited to continue to release episodes that touch on relevant energy-related topics in Alaska. Our first section of episodes released the audio from our Energy Speaker Series, live events that took place in the fall of 2019. If you have not listened to those, be sure to go back and hear about electric vehicles, building a clean energy economy, pathways to cleaner electricity, tidal and hydrokinetic energy, and building science. In this next installment, we will be taking a closer look at the rail belt electric grid. That is the interconnected electric grid that stretches between Homer and Fairbanks. Rail belt electric grid reform is something that REAP has been working on for years and something that we feel is crucial in transforming our shift in how we produce and use electricity. REAP was instrumental in introducing legislation that was passed and signed into law this past spring. This law is going to be important in transforming how we manage our electric grid. To take a deeper look at where we came from and what lies ahead, I sat down with REAP's Executive Director, Chris Rose. Chris has been at the center of this work for years, and we will spend the next handful of Renewable Radio episodes chatting with Chris about all things rail belt grid reform. If you have not done so, please subscribe on whatever app you are listening to this episode on. Visit our website at alaskarenewableenergy.org to see the other initiatives REAP is working on, and be sure to check out our stories section for the latest news and posts from REAP staff. With that, join me in my discussion with Chris. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me on our uh, next installment of Renewable Radio here. Um, I'm excited to chat with you and learn some more um, about this new legislation that was passed and this rulemaking process that the regulatory commission is going through. Um, so, so we've got a lot to get through. Um, you know, I, I know you worked hard on uh, getting uh, this legislation passed in the last session, um, but before we get to kind of the details of, of where we're at today, um, I think it's important for everyone listening to, to get a little context uh, and background. So um, my first question is if we saw um, this sort of story play out in a history textbook. When, when exactly would our timeline start here? Well, it probably starts sometime back in the 30s when, in the lower 48, uh, rural electrification started taking place. And so there was a lot of places in the United States that hadn't, didn't have electricity right up and through the 30s. And, and that's when a lot of rural co-ops got started. The first electrical co-op in Alaska was established uh, in Palmer, the Matanuska Electric Association, I believe it was 1942. Uh, and that was uh, probably a, a group of farmers who'd been sent here on the colony project by Fed- uh, uh, President Roosevelt to colonize the farmland around the Palmer area. And they finally got together and said, hey, you know, instead of running these independent generators, let's form an electrical co-op like uh, they're doing down in the lower 48. And and that's how Matanuska Electric Association got started. Um, at that point in time, it was about a two-hour gravel road ride between Palmer 
in Anchorage. And to give you some sense, uh, you know, it takes about 35 minutes today. So the roads were different. There wasn't a transmission line between Palmer and Anchorage. And, and there were other places like Anchorage and Fairbanks and the Kenai Peninsula that did the same thing, the city of Seward all began to pull together their own local electric utilities. Uh, there are four electric utilities in what we call the rail belt, which is an area that roughly runs from Homer and Seward up through Anchorage and the Matanuska Valley, Susitna Valley to Fairbanks. There's Golden Valley Electric Association in Fairbanks, Matanuska Electric Association in, in the Matanuska Susitna Valleys. And then there's also two utilities in Anchorage, uh, Chugach Electric Association, which is a co-op, and the uh, Anchorage Municipal, Municipal uh, Power and Light, or Light and Power, MLNP. There's the City of Seward, which is also an ML, uh, a, a municipal utility. And then finally, down on the Kenai Peninsula, Homer Electric Association. So that's a co-op as well. There's four co-ops and two munis. And, uh, and were all those co-ops created around 1930 is that the timeline of the co-ops um that no, you just mentioned no i'm sorry the first one in alaska was 1942 okay and then those uh, that was mea and then the, the other ones followed um and so we have four electric co-ops which are nonprofits that are owned by the members and two municipal utilities that are owned by the city of anchorage and the city of seward those utilities have operated uh, independently of each other uh, for a lot the last uh, 80 years or so. Um, and there certainly has been cooperation uh, amongst them on certain things. But for the most part, they've been doing their own thing. They've been making their own plans. They've been serving their own customers. They've been building their own generation. Now, interestingly, in Alaska, a lot of the transmission, the electric wires that move electricity from one place to another, um, have been built by the state. Uh, the state of Alaska has invested quite a bit in, in the transmission system. Utilities have put some money into that, and utilities typically own the local, what we call distribution wires, uh, mm. the wires that, that come into your neighborhoods. So... When we look at the electric industry, we're, we're typically talking about transmission and distribution wires and then generation resources. And in the case of Alaska, all of these utilities have had their own generation resources, although that's not completely true um, because up until just a few years ago, uh, there were a couple of utilities, uh, Homer Electric Association and uh, Matanuska Electric Association that although they had a share in a state-run project called Bradley Lake, uh, bought most of their power wholesale from Chugach Electric, uh, Electric Association in Anchorage. And so MEA and HEA didn't build their own generation until just about the last 10 years or so. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So the, the Chugach really supplied a lot of the power. Uh, it still supplies most of the power to the city of Seward. And uh, MLMP and Chugach and, and now MEA have, have been moving power uh, up the power line, the, the transmission system, to Golden Valley um, on, on kind of a, a day ahead or so schedule where they'll just buy power on a, whole, uh, on a wholesale basis um, from utilities uh, south of the range. Because 
Fairbanks is the uh, utility, uh, Golden Valley, that doesn't really have any access uh, to natural gas generation. They mostly are generating with coal and oil off of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, which is more expensive. So if they're they're purchasing electricity from each other, um, but then they're functioning independently, can you, can you talk a little bit more about that relationship? How, how, how are they functioning you know, on their own here? Well, those bilateral contracts are just kind of ad hoc transactions. Um, the, the, there's no systematic way um, to that that's dispatching power from a central location um, to the entire rail belt, and and that's actually one of the things that the Regulatory Commission of Alaska has asked that uh, the utilities move toward. It's something that REAP has definitely been supportive of. Because each of these six utilities essentially has what is called a balancing area. Because they're running their own electric generation independently, they're balancing supply and demand in their service territory on a constant basis. That's the way electricity works. You've got to have the same amount of supply as, as there is demand. So there's, there's a constant dance to make sure that supply and demand are balanced. And so a service area um, is essentially a balancing area. Okay. Uh, when you have a balancing area that's relatively small, it makes it more difficult to input renewable generation like wind and solar that's intermittent and unpredictable. You don't know when the wind is going to blow or the sun is going to shine. And unless you have a battery or some other energy storage device that stores that electricity momentarily so that it can be used more on a on-demand basis, um, you have to integrate those inter uh, uh, intermediate uh, or intermittent renewables constantly, just like you would uh, uh, the other generation sources that you've got or and and the demand responses that you're getting so when a person turns off a light or a freezer or whatever the utility has to lower the demand and and those machines typically are able to do that um, but when you insert intermittent renewables um, the smaller your balancing area the harder it is to find a place for that electron to go and it, and is that the impetus of why REAP got involved in this in the first place? What, what, when did kind of you and, and REAP kind of come to this realization that, that um, you know, working in this utility realm was going to be necessary for, for renewable energy generation? Well, we've always seen the stark differences between the way our grid was being run, which is like I already described pretty independently, and the way grids in the lower 48 are run, of course, there's reasons for that. The lower 48's got a lot more people, um, more population density, uh, shorter distances, and just more people to pay for all those assets. So there, there's some reasons why our system was the way it was. Um, and there's been efforts over the last 40 years, at least, to get the utilities to work more closely together. Uh, on various things, whether it's going in on a generation plant together or considering uh, transmission projects together uh, to reliability standards, because this whole grid is really one machine 
uh, has to have the same reliability standards, and we don't have those yet in in, in the rail belt. So all of those things were were something that we we cared about. But I guess the biggest issues for REAP have come down to this issue of uh, integrating renewables into the grid, and th the balancing area that I just described is one of them. So if we had one large balancing area that stretched from Homer to Fairbanks, we would have more places to put those intermittent electrons uh, from a wind or solar plant uh, when they are produced than if the balancing area is just one of these rather small or relatively small balancing areas that one of the six utilities runs independently. So that's been one issue. And the other issue has been interconnection standards Interconnection standards are important because uh, there are a lot of entities out there called independent power producers, which are essentially developers who will sell utilities power on a contract basis. And these are ubiquitous in the lower 48. In fact, about 40% of all the electricity in the lower 48 is produced by independent power producers. They also uh, tend to be the kinds of producers who often are renewable energy producers, wind entrepreneurs, solar generators, geothermal generators. And so if we're gonna have more of them, we wanna make the interconnection into the grid simple and easy. And that has not been the case because there have been six utilities with six different procedures and processes to get interconnected. Sure. So that's been really difficult. So. Uh, we we didn't really push hard on any of that stuff. Um, we 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 touched around the seams of those issues before, and you could tell the utilities just didn't want anyone uh, messing in their business. But it was interesting because in 2014, Chugach Electric Association came to reap. They are the biggest utility in the state. They run uh, the utility that is. Uh, serves most of Anchorage and is in the process of trying to acquire. Uh, Anchorage Municipal, Municipal Power and Light, uh, or Light and Power, MLMP. So they would become by far the biggest utility in the state. And they asked us whether or not we would support something called an independent system operator, or ISO. And an independent system operator is an operator that essentially operates the entire system as one big piece of machinery. So there'd be one central location where the independent system operator dispatched uh, power from all the generation assets that all of the utilities owned. So the utilities would still maintain the ownership of their power plants, but they'd essentially be handing the keys over to run them to the independent system operator. And what this would do is allow for what's called merit order economic dispatch. Merit order economic dispatch means that uh, the lowest priced generation goes on first. The most efficient goes on first uh, for the whole region. The second most efficient generator then in the whole region would go on second and third and so on to meet demand for the entire region. So instead of running six different balancing areas, you'd have one balancing area that would be run by an independent system operator that would not own the generation assets, but would have access to them and would run them the reason why that's important is increasingly, as we see, solar and wind, because they have no fuel cost, have become, in most jurisdictions in the lower 48 now, the cheapest electricity that a utility can run, because there is mm. no fuel cost. Sure. And, and so if you have cheap generation coming from wind and solar, um, they're going to 
they're going to be in merit order. They're going to be coming in first before anything that has a fuel cost associated with it. And also, if we had a single load balancing area, we would be able to um, have a bigger area to spread those intermittent electrons over. So uh-huh. they said, hey, would you support an independent system operator? We said, sure. Interestingly, um, their idea of an independent system operator quickly morphed to a unified system operator because I think they realized that what an independent system operator truly is is an independent entity that would not have any of the utilities themselves on the board of governance. Right. So immediately switched to a different model where they could be on the board of governance. And uh, that's interesting because we're still haggling over the board of governance of uh, of the electric reliability organization that we're looking at today. Uh, so but that's when what, it started back in 2014. So what, what would be the downside or upside? I guess what are the positives and negatives to having a unified system operator versus an independent system operator? Independent obviously seems good because they're going to just take everything at face value and and produce the best product they can produce. Um, but is you know what's the value of having kind of the utilities at the seat of the governing board of this of this operation? Well, uh, an independent system operator is going to be very objective because they they don't have uh, any way to game the system. There's no way for them to they have no skin in the game, so they're not going to um, ever be accused of dispatching power. Um, in a way that favors um, anybody else because you know, the, the governance board is completely independent from the utilities that own the generation in the area. If the utility companies themselves are part of the governance board and part of the actual system operation, then I think there's probably more possibility that there's going to be some conflict uh, between the utilities and potentially one of them one or more of them accusing the others of saying, hey, you know, the way you're dispatching power is disfavoring us in some sure. way. Um, but the the idea of system operations is, is relatively the same. Um, you're still getting one big balancing area. You're still getting merit order dispatch. There's just the question of, you know, the governance and whether or not that makes sense for the governance to be independent or not. Um, you know, the utilities do have expertise. There's absolutely no doubt about that. They know the system better than anybody else. And I think that uh, over time, uh, a lot of us have said, well, it makes sense for them to be on the board. Uh, the real question that uh, we're haggling over right now is who else is going to be on the board and in what proportion uh, relative to the utilities? Um, and, and what kind of plan are we going to have to evolve toward an independent board, because some of these same organizations that have been created in the lower 48 perhaps did start out more utility centric, mm-hmm. but moved over time to independent board. And, and so that's, that's part of the issue that we're dealing with right now in front of the Regulatory Commission of Alaska. So so before we jump jump into that, I just want to make sure we have our, our sort of history timeline uh, finished. So so we've got the the co-ops popping up in the middle of the 20th century, and then we fast forward to today when people are talking about unifying the electric grid a little bit. And 2014 is this idea of an independent system operator, and that fell through um, 
because of a divide, whether you want it independent or, or utility driven? Um, is that the yeah. case? Yeah, I mean, REAP actually was able to get the legislature to introduce two bills to create an independent system operator, uh, one in 2015 and one in 2018. And, and neither one of those bills uh, was able to get very far in the legislature because the utility uh, utilities did not like the idea of uh, an independent board. Um, but even before 2014, there have been other uh, efforts by the utilities um, and the state of Alaska. In 2011, state of Alaska, Alaska Energy Authority put a million dollars into a rail belt integrated resource plan that was completed, uh, but never used because there's no entity to execute it. Um, mm -hmm. In 2010, there was a bill in the legislature called Gretzi, the Greater Rail Belt Energy and Transmission Company, which was the idea of creating a large generation and transmission company, or G&T. The utilities uh, tried to get that passed. It fell through because of conflict. Um, in 2008, um, there was a thing proposed called the Rail Belt Electrical Grid Authority. Uh, that didn't go anywhere. Um, in 2005, uh, there was something called the Alaska Rail Belt Energy Authority Joint Action Agency, but that really didn't do anything, and I don't believe it uh, contained all six utilities. Uh, and you know, you can go on and all, all the way back to the 1980s, uh, when utilities were uh, talking about various schemes to to pull themselves together and, and to work together. So okay, so that's a long, uh, you know, a, a lengthy process or or a long timeline of of working towards this unification. And then we fast forward to today and we have this legislation uh, that passed this past year. Um, and uh, what 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 was different about this time that that we were able um, to see see it uh, be successful? Well, there's at least three things that I think were different. Um, first, uh, the regulatory commission uh, and the legislature, I guess that's first and second. The regulatory commission and the legislature have definitely uh, become more involved. Uh, in 2014, the legislature gave a grant to the RCA, the Regulatory Commission of Alaska, which is our public utility commission, to study the rail belt grid. And that study was completed in 2015. And the RCA wrote a letter to the legislature uh, just about exactly five years ago today, June 30th, 2015, uh, with findings and recommendations about what was needed in the rail belt grid that included the idea of some kind of a system operator and transmission company and rail belt reliability standards and so on. Um, and instead of mandating any of that on the utilities in 2015, the commission essentially said, we'll give you some time, utilities, to voluntarily uh, pull some of this stuff together. Uh, to keep the pressure on, as I mentioned, REAP was able to get legislation introduced in both 2015 and 2018 because the voluntary efforts of, of the utilities uh, had a lot of uh, fits and starts. Uh, there were some things that went pretty well for a while, then stalled uh, for the idea, for, for instance, the idea of uh, a power pool in the Anchorage and, and Matanuska Valley area. So that, that would be the idea of kind of a mini uh, or a larger balancing area than a single balancing area for each utility, but not as big as the whole rail belt grid. So a tight power pool was, was uh, talked about and, and never happened. That would have at least 
pool the generation resources of MLNP and Chugach and MEA. That never happened. Uh, the utilities finally got together some rail belt reliability standards that they agreed to in 2018, but none of the other things that the commission really wanted uh, were moving. Meanwhile, uh, groups like REAP were educating legislators about the need for this. As I mentioned, two pieces of legislation prior to the one that was introduced in 2019. Uh, and so I think that just the the ongoing iterative process of educating the entities that are really in charge, the state legislature and the regulatory commission made a big difference. And, and that in turn put pressure on the utilities, which would be the third thing, to really start uh, working together more. And so <clears throat> they, they started to pull together uh, themselves in various ways. Um, some worked, some didn't. Um, four of the six created something called ArcTech, uh, that did not include MLMP or Homer Electric, and, and they hired a consultant from Georgia to give them uh, uh, the consultant's point of view of, of how we should uh, consolidate the operations in the rail belt and unify them. Um, and then the utilities themselves came up with the idea of something called a rail belt reliability council, and they signed a memorandum of understanding amongst themselves finally in December of 2019. Uh, but that was already after this legislation had been introduced in the legislature. It was clear that the writing was on the wall that something was going to happen. And I think the utilities were um, hard pressed not to do anything. So they, they tried their best to come up with a, uh, an MOU that described the kind of electric reliability organization that they could live with. Now, it's important to note the difference between this electric reliability organization that's now been mandated through this uh, passage of Senate Bill 123 um, in the legislature in March and then it's signing by Governor Dunleavy in April and the previous attempt to create an independent system operator because this whole idea of a merit order um, economic dispatch system, you know, a system operator that would do that um, that would allow, you know, more uh, easy, easy, easily uh, uh, integration of renewables into the grid um, and, and also ensure that the most efficient, therefore cheapest generation was running at, at any given time did not make it into the legislation. And that's because the utilities are still wrestling with this issue among themselves. They cannot agree on economic dispatch, even though that's clearly one of the primary goals of the regulatory commission is to make things uh, more economical for consumers. And in fact, a lot of legislators asked about this bill as it uh, wound down to the final days of the session and it looked like it was gonna pass and there were attempts to even uh, insert um, the whole idea of economic dispatch into the bill. But um, we felt like that would have uh, caused so much problem that the, the bill may not have passed. So we don't have this concept of economic dispatch yet. Uh, what we do have in the bill is the creation of an uh, uh, electric reliability organization that will uh, focus on reliability standards, uh, both their creation and um, their enforcement, um, creating interconnection standards that are transparent and consistent across the grid. So we'd have one set of interconnection standards that would be non-discriminatory for uh, independent power producers, uh, companies that might want to come in and and uh, by contract sell wind power or solar power 
into the grid. Um, importantly, uh, the legislation also addressed uh, the concept of rate recovery uh, or cost recovery, I should say, for the transmission system. Uh, it, it would set us on a course to finally find a way to economically build new transmission if it's needed and, and then spread the cost uh, around different consumers who would benefit from it. Mm. That would help us move toward uh, a universal tariff or a fee to move electricity uh, over the transmission system. So a universal transmission tariff is something that um, that REAP has wanted because that's the cost of delivery. I mean, we can have right. goods which are, you know, let's say a wind electron or a solar electron, but then you've got to deliver those goods. And um, the cost of delivery is the transmission tariff. And right now, each of the utilities, because they own part of the transmission system themselves, and I'll go back and explain that in a second because uh, uh, I'll go back and explain that now because I mentioned before that the state had built a lot of this transmission, but they'd also then right. deeded it. They'd also deeded it to the local utility that it may have served the the most. So uh, a lot of this transmission is actually owned by the different utilities, and and they can charge their own fee or tariff when electrons move across their wires. And so if you're moving uh, an electron, let's say from Homer all the way to Fairbanks, boy, you're going to probably move through three or four different service areas. And by the time you get that electron all the way to Fairbanks, uh, the cost of delivering the power, the transmission tariffs, have now stacked on top of each other, one after another, what we call pancaking transmission tariffs. Mm. And now the cost of moving the power has exceeded the cost of generating the power, which, of course, is just you know, crazy and uneconomical. Um, sure. So the, the legislation addresses the, at least the beginnings of cost recovery for transmission. Uh, important to us, the legislation also now is going to require um, that the electric reliability organization do integrated resource planning for the whole region. So instead of having each of these utilities uh, have their own plans for their own relatively small service areas, they're going to have to plan together. And that means we're going to have uh, a hopefully a much more flexible grid, a grid that has uh, a more diverse set of resources. Right now, the grid is more than 80% reliant on natural gas. So we want to make sure that we diversify the grid, we make it more flexible with things like energy storage. Um, and we, when we do build power plants, we build them in the right place um, that won't impact uh, transmission as, as much uh, as some uh, generation plants may have. And uh, that we build them to a scale that makes them more economic. If you can imagine if you know, three or four utilities all build their own natural gas generation plant when it would have been possible for them to potentially go together and build one big natural gas generation plant, uh -huh. that uh, bigger plant would have been much cheaper on a per unit of energy basis. So the integrated resource planning is going to be important for a number of things because it'll have to forecast out into the future what the demand for electricity is going to be in the region and then talk about what the transmission and generation assets and resources necessary to meet those um, forecasted demands might be. Um, and that, that's going to be important as we move in toward more electric transportation, because, of course, that's going to increase the demand for electricity in the rail belt, which could be a really good thing for these utilities 
who have a lot of generation assets that are not working full time right now. Um, so those are some of the main things this electric reliability organization is going to do. As I mentioned, it will not tackle, at least at the beginning, it's not going to tackle this idea of uh, economic dispatch or system operation. So we're not going to uh -huh. have a system operator. We're going to have an electric reliability organization. And um, right now, the regulatory commission, uh, as a state agency that has delegated power from the legislature, has been told um, by the legislature through Senate Bill 123 to start making the rules to how to implement all those things for the electric reliability organization. Um, it's also going to have to make rules. The RCA is also going to have to make rules uh, re, uh, around the idea of what kind of competencies this electric reliability organization must have to get certified by the commission because the electric reliability organization or ERO has not yet been created. Um, the legislation says that there will be one, but there's basically two paths to getting there. The first path which I think a lot of people are hoping will be the path, mm -hmm. is that uh, a group of applicants and stakeholders get together and they, they apply to the regulatory commission and those applications are not open until October of 2021, but an application be submitted to the commission. The commission then will look at these competencies that they're making rules on now and, uh, and then certify that ERO or not. The second path to creating the ERO is if the commission doesn't certify any applicant um, or there are no applicants, and the commission then is uh, been told by the legislature to create an electric reliability organization on its own. So the one way or the other, we're going to get there. Um, the other thing the commission's making rules on right now is uh, rules uh, around new authority that Senate Bill 123 just gave them. Um, it's been real interesting to see how these new generation plants over the last decade or so in the rail bed have been built because there's been no way for the Regulatory Commission of Alaska to stop any of them. Um, in other words, there's no pre-approval authority the commission has had in the past to look at a project before it's built and say, why are you doing this? Make it smaller, make it bigger, work with somebody else, consider a different option. Uh, no, uh, there's been no pre-approval authority um, delegated to our regulatory commission of Alaska until now. And uh -huh. so now this, this new law says any new project um, has to go through an approval process uh, by the commission. And that could either be through this planning process uh, where everyone gets together and talks about what we need. Uh, and then the commission could approve the plans or through an, a, a standalone process where the commission will decide on a case-by-case -case basis, whether transmission or generation uh, facility needs to be built. So they're also making rules around that. Okay. Well, that that's a lot of info there. And, and I'd like to kind of dive in and, and unpack um, a few of the things that, that you mentioned um, and then, and then kind of look forward to, to kind of these, this process that you just mentioned. Um, but before we do that, let's, let's take a quick break here um, and, and we'll come back and uh, continue conversation. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for tuning in to part one of our conversation with Chris Rose on the Railbelt Electric Grid. We'll come back with part two of this conversation in our next episode. 
Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you for the next installment of Renewable Radio.